One of our local listeners uh, popped by the house a few days ago asking me if I'd read the article in The Economist about toxoplasmosis. In fact, I had and was preparing to talk about it on this program. This would be follow-up on last week's discussion of the insanity virus from discovermagazine.com. This article got my attention both because it was apt follow-up for last week's discussion, and brought to mind a little anecdote, something that happened to me about a year ago, a year and a half ago, I guess. I met this reasonably attractive woman in Marin County who invited me over for dinner one night. Like, like many people whose elevator doesn't necessarily go to the top floor, she had some curious ideas which emerged during the dinner preparation, one of which was that her two cats had to have special diets. One only would eat beef, I think it was, and the other had to have only seafood. Scallops were on the menu that day, and the cats, it was emphasized, had free reign to walk about the house anywhere they like, including the countertops where food was going to be prepared. My thoughts turned to Toxoplasma gondii, a protozoan cousin of the parasite that causes malaria. Toxoplasma normally resides in cats and rodents, the economist couldn't help noting some recent research which shows how curious the life cycle of this organism is, for it does some very strange things when it's living inside a rodent. In fact, it works like this. The organism tends to live in the gut of the domestic cat. When the cat evacuates his bowels, as those of you who are so fond of having indoor kitties <laughs> know, which kitty will do in the bathrooms and living rooms and perhaps even kitchens of people who insist on having indoor cats. The cysts of an infected cat are there in the feces. Rats and mice tend to gnaw on everything, and if they're exposed to the cat feces and gnaw on them, the parasite gets loose inside of the rodents, where it then induces behavior that helps it get back inside the cat. Infected rats and mice start wandering around and drawing attention to themselves, behaving in ways that bring them to the attention of cats. They've done research that shows that the rodents at that point appear to be attracted to the smell of cats. This has long been known, but how it happened uh, was only deciphered recently. Some research at the University of Leeds in England showed that um, the toxoplasma's genes encode for enzymes involved in the production of dopamine. Now, in people and in multi-celled animals, dopamine has a role to play in nervous systems. It's a chemical messenger. It doesn't have any known function in single-celled animals. When the bug produces dopamine in the rat, it apparently has an inappropriate sense of well-being, which contributes to it becoming cat food. But what's really curious is that it's been long been known that if you get toxoplasma in you, that's you and me, especially if you and me as a pregnant lady, there's real problems. We mentioned on last week's show the research by Fuller Torrey at Johns Hopkins, which showed that people suffering from schizophrenia are three times as likely as the general population to have antibodies to toxoplasma, indicating that that infection may 
be key to their developing schizophrenia. But this has prompted some further research looking into uh, people that may have had toxoplasma infections to see what, what else might be uh, discovered. And it turns out that apparently both drivers and pedestrians who'd been in accidents were almost three times more likely to be infected than comparable individuals who had not been. Research in Turkey found other abnormalities in infected people. These included reduced reaction times and shortened attention spans. Anyway, uh, I think we're going to find as we do more research that toxoplasma has um, got a bigger role to play in human health than we ever suspected, including human mental health. And speaking of mental health, keep your damn cat off the counters. And no, I don't know if this individual in question uh, was made a little bit more batty by the presence of toxoplasma, but I've got my suspicions. Speaking of brain function or malfunction, uh, there's been, uh, in recent years, an explosion of brain games that, when played a few hours a week, purportedly sharpen your overall cerebral reflexes like a fitness regimen for the mind. But a study by British researchers suggests that such a training does help. Unfortunately, only if your goal is to score better in brain teasers. Otherwise, researchers find the games provided no discernible boost to memory, planning, general reasoning, or similar cognitive skills. This does allow us to segue into, uh, again, I'm going to quote from The Economist, their obituary for the late Martin Gardner. I believe we mentioned Mr. Gardner's passing a few weeks ago, but as usual, the writing in The Economist just begs to be quoted from. Said the magazine, Martin Gardner, man of letters and numbers, died on May 22nd, age 95. Where literacy meets numeracy, enthusiasm meets skepticism, and philosophy meets fun, there you find Martin Gardner. He earned his crust by writing, but his abiding interest was in maths and his gift, or rather one of them, was to explain mathematical concepts in ways that made sense to non-mathematicians. Mr. Gardner did not come to his task from MIT or Caltech. Indeed, he had no formal math training after high school. But he did come from a job in journalism. To be precise, from a post at Humpty Dumpty's Magazine for Little Children, where, among other tasks, he helped with the designs, including all the cutouts. Work with cutouts inspired him to write an article that launched his column, Mathematical Games, and with it, a pastime now known as Recreational Maths. It is notable that Mr. Gardner was one of the few popularizers of difficult subjects who earned the respect of serious thinkers. W.H. Auden, Noam Chomsky, Stephen Jay Gould, and Douglas Hofstadter among them. Martin Gardner was one of the world's great skeptics. We've quoted from him on uh, numerous occasions over the past many years. The Economist said that any beliefs he thought pseudoscientific, such as homeopathy, Scientology, creationism, anthroposophy, I think I'm pronouncing that right, spoon-bending, astrology, and flying saucers, he would dismiss with cool efficiency. Other ideas, such as Ronald Reagan's beloved Laffer Curve, were derided in spoof articles. Mr. Gardner had a sense of humor and used it to effect, but he was not malicious, though he enjoyed hoaxes. He would sometimes turn them on himself, once writing under a pseudonym a withering review of one of his own books in the New York Review of Books. 
Although he was a notable skeptic, uh, Martin Gardner came to a belief in God later in life. His declaration of that belief caused, he admitted, profound shock to those who knew him only as a skeptic, but as the magazine noted, there was too much playfulness in Mr. Gardner to make him yield entirely to reason. His faith, he said, was based on emotional turning of the will, unsupported by logic or science. It was his way, perhaps, of recognizing that mind and man are not synonyms. And in other news regarding skeptics, Nicholas Copernicus, noted skeptic of the biblical view that the sun goes around the earth, was finally given a Catholic funeral last month. Evidently, his bones were uh, identified through DNA testing of descendants. I didn't realize this, but apparently Copernicus had been a low-level church official. The tombstone under which he now lies identifies him as the founder of the heliocentric theory, but uh, also a church canon, which is a cleric ranking below a priest. Actually, as I'm talking, I'm I'm reading the article and realize I just made a wrong guess. They didn't identify him from uh, uh, DNA from relatives, but from hairs found in one of his books. So the Catholic Church is apparently on a rehabilitation roll. Uh, This rehabilitation of Copernicus comes 18 years after the Vatican uh, said that they'd been wrong about Galileo. They shouldn't have condemned his works. I think we probably should give some credit to uh, the Polish bishop, Jacek Jezierski, who said uh, last month, today's funeral has symbolic value in that it is a gesture of reconciliation between science and faith. Maybe sometime about the year 2525, uh, American fundamentalists will finally admit that Darwin was on to something. All right, let's close the show with two items from Argentina. Well, more correctly, Argentina, Cuba, and Bolivia. Apparently, tourism officials in all three countries are collaborating on a historical route that will allow tourists to follow the footsteps of Ernesto Che Guevara. Bolivia's Vice Minister of Tourism, Marco Antonio Preedo, said that the international Caminos del Che trail will include sites where Guevara was born, fought, and died. I love this part. Officials say they're being sensitive to Guevara's legacy, which was long ago co-opted by t-shirt vendors the world over. He certainly is the poster boy of the Cuban Revolution. Apparently interest in Guevara has increased in Latin American countries which celebrate the bicentennial of earlier revolutions that led to independence from Spain. And now leftist administrations in Argentina and Bolivia have broken down taboos associated with Guevara who inspired both armed insurrection and state repression. The part I like about the Guevara story that tends to get left out is that Fidel Castro, seeing him as a potential rival, arranged for him to leave the country and foment revolution elsewhere. That worked out in a satisfactory fashion for Fidel, but uh, for Che, not so much. We got about a minute left, and I guess the question we would go out with was, how would you like to own Ava Perone's handbag? Well, it and lots of other items of Juan Perón memorabilia apparently are for sale in Argentina these days. Evidently, a man named Mario Rotundo befriended Juan Perón in 1970 when he was exiled in Madrid, before which the Argentinians were crazy enough to make him the president of the country again. Juan Perón agreed to leave his worldly possessions to Mr. Rotundo. By 1990, there were no copies of his will remaining in existence, and his third wife, Isabel, 
formally gave Mr. Rotundo title to the belongings. She soon regretted her promise and tried to reverse the gift, but uh, had no luck in the courts. By the way, they made Isabel president of the country, too. I guess if you got the name Perone, you just they make you president. Allegedly, Mr. Rotundo has already made $500,000 for his charitable foundation by selling select objects from the Perone collection. Apparently, he's got 14,000 items left. Call now. Operators are standing by. We're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time. <laughs>